0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. Once again, welcome to Four Corners. I'm on the stage with our development pastor, Melissa, And she's up here with me for a very good reason. We wanted to tell you about a couple of exciting things going on in the life of our church that if you just come on Sunday mornings and maybe you don't take the announcements home or pay attention during that video, you might miss. And they're so important. They're for your development, for your growth. We wanted you to get them. So, Melissa, you've been in this role as our development pastor for a few months now.
1: Yes. How's it going? Great. Love it. What do
0: you like most about it so far?
1: Um, It's pushed me out of my comfort zone for the first time in a long time. I love
0: it. So you're growing.
1: And I'm meeting lots of new people.
0: You're growing. You're helping us grow. Yes. Three big areas that we're going to talk about today. One is groups. So Mm -hmm. when people came in, there was a catalog on their seats. This is the last Sunday that these catalogs be on their seat because it's the last Sunday to use your Connect card to sign up for a group. So on your Connect card that Pastor Will told you about, next step C, you just take the number of the group, write it there on your card. Tell us about groups at Four Corners this time around.
1: Oh, groups, um, I'm so excited. I'm more excited than ever about groups. Um, we've got a relational focus going on our groups, although we're, st- we're really strategic about our biblical content as well. So we say they're relationally focused and biblically based. Um, we've got a group of hosts, 19 of them, who have stepped up to host you, to lead you. Um, our hope is that um, we have relationships that are formed, that these groups last over semesters, and that with those trusted relationships, you're able to really engage the Bible at a deeper level, ask questions, and have great conversations about it.
0: Melissa, here's the truth. Some folks have tried groups in the past Mm -hmm. and they didn't have a connection either relationally or they felt like the content didn't help them grow what would you say specifically to that person
1: we made some changes um, the first changes were're doing them every week um, we have a 12-week semester and we knew that when we did every other week and life happens to all of us you miss a couple all of a sudden you're there four times relationships can't be built in four times it's it's difficult to do that um, so you tried that and then and then the biblical content was kind of all over the board we had some that had a little some that were very teacher focused um, and they weren't very consistent so this time we're really bringing them under an umbrella um, with a lot of consistency, great content, um, and an easy way to deliver it in a way that they can have great conversations.
0: And if you've been here a long time, some folks will notice a pretty big difference. In the past, we would call a small group something like if you got together and you rode motorcycles. Right. Maybe you prayed before and we would call that a small group. We're not really using that same language anymore. Why is that?
1: Well, we do want people to do that. So number one, if you're hearing that, don't worry, you can still go off and ride motorcycles, but it's not technically a group. A group meets every week. Um, They're sharing a meal or snacks together. They're diving into the Bible together, um, and they're meeting for the semester. Hopefully, at the end of the semester, that group is saying, what do we wanna do next time? And most of them are staying together.
0: Yeah, so here's the deal. We do our best to help provide opportunities for. For you to grow, but you are 100% responsible for your growth spiritually. You're adults. And our job is to give you tools to feed yourself, not to stand there and spoon feed you. So what we're doing is giving you an opportunity to engage weekly, build some relationships over time, and get some content from God's Word that you can discuss in the safety of relationships. Now, that takes a while. That takes a while for that relational dynamic to kick in. We are asking you, whether you're a part of this church formally, if you're our guest today, you're welcome to be a part of this. This is the primary way we help you grow. So I'll do that in here to the best of my ability, but you really grow when you sit in circles with each other, build relationships, take off the mask, Get vulnerable and talk about truth from God's Word. Now, that's not all we're talking about today because something else really is exciting and seems to be a lot of energy from the Lord on this right now. It's called Grow. Yes. Why don't you tell folks about Grow because there's some wondering what all this is about. Right. Give folks the three-minute, here's what Grow is. All
1: right, Grow is not an event. It's not gonna happen one or two times and it's gone. This is a new part of our DNA here at Four Corners. Um, We believe that one of the steps in your spiritual journey is to discover your purpose. The day you were born was a great... A great day, but the day you discover why you were born is an even greater day. So grow is a four experience, four steps. Um, the first one is becoming a member. Um, it's taught by Pastor Ben. He goes through all of the why are we here, what do we believe, a lot of great doctrinal content. It's a
0: very short class, Melissa. It's not
1: short, but it's, it's awesome. and we can't. There's nothing to cut because it's, it's so good.
0: It's three and a half hours long. It is. So it, it is. It goes from 4 to 7.30. So there are a handful of people who are like, when does the church go deep? Well, you have to make a three-and-a-half-hour investment to, dis- to discover that. And 150
1: that. Okay. people have done that so far. So far
0: in the life of our church. In two times, incredible. which pretty is amazing. Um, Step two. Step
1: two is discovering your design. Um, that's happening tonight. If, you've RSV- if you have already RSVP'd, make sure you come tonight. If you have not, we'll have one in a couple of months. And um, we have 80 signed up for that. So they and can't
0: just show up. Please, Why is that?
1: Because we're serving a meal. We're sharing a meal together every time. Um, we have it catered in. And so to be good stewards of our finances, we want to make sure that we're spot-on with our food delivery. Delivery, and we can't do that if we just open it up. And
0: if they are repeating, can't make it. It's Please just, let us know. Yeah, like right away. That'd right? be great. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so that's tonight. And, and that's a series of really fun um, exercises of spiritual gifts testing, where's your heart, writing down experiences you've had. We're discovering our shape tonight. Um, it's only two and a half hours long, um, but it's going to be really, really fun. I'm excited about that. And then next week, we have disco- um, Developing Your Leadership. It's all about the spiritual habits that if we can really put those into practice in our lives, we will go way deeper with our relationship with the Lord. Prayer, time in the Word, um, there's, there's several. It's going to be great. And you know,
0: leadership, as John Maxwell describes it, is influence. So we're talking about how do you leverage the influence God gives you, and that requires a certain amount of discipline, or, or what we would call the spiritual disciplines that work in your life we want to help you do that, and then we want to help you leverage the influence that that God has given you. And And practical
1: tools on how to do that, which is great. Number four is making a difference. We're going to be talking about our missions and outreach here at Four Corners, and we're going to have a ministry fair type of an atmosphere where at the end of step four, you can go to a ministry lead, talk about the ministry that they do, go through an orientation, and get all set up to start serving on a team here.
0: And if you already serve on a team, why would you want to go to step four?
1: Well, step four is going to be great because you're going to get some new information from your ministry leads. You're going to get excited about the role that you're serving in. And there may be one or two that may want to make a shift. You never know. um, Based on what your spiritual gifts and what your uh, experience tonight is.
0: You mean if you're in a ministry experience here and you're not enjoying it, you can actually change? Yes,
1: please. We want you to love it. We want you to wait for Sunday morning, wake up and say, yes, it's Sunday. I get to go serve today. So these
0: are two major programs, Groups and Grow, next steps Mm -hmm. that people can take today. Right. But there's another thing that you're working on that hasn't got quite as much visibility, but that's changing.
1: Right. We can only do a little at a time here. You can't press me that hard. All
0: right, so... What is the uh, what is this third thing that we're coming excited up?
1: About? We are going to put a huge focus on marriage. Um, I'm so excited. We're doing a series of date nights. The first one will be December the first. The second one after that will be January the twenty first. Um, it's a great time. You'll come in. Um, we'll have a fun thirty to forty minute kind of uh, get to know each other time, and then you're going to leave here with a date packet on how to have your date. It's instructions and everything, men. What you can say, where your wife might want to go. It's a great tool. You're going to love it it's a good time and uh, i think it's going to help marriages really um i, I don't know um Thrive? Thrive. I'm excited. It's an intentional date night. It's an intentional date night. So lots
0: of fun, keeping it healthy. And then with that, we'll be packaging some incredible content as well, right? Right,
1: and our hope is is that people who come to those marriage date nights, that that will be a great funnel for you to be able to funnel yourself into a new marriage group so that it's not just an event for you. It's really a catalyst to real um, game-changing stuff in your marriage.
0: Melissa, we have people who are very young here. We have people who are very old here. Um, How do we, how do we as... I meant that the way it didn't come That's out. That's us. I'm sorry. I think, I think
1: it's
0: us. <laughs> we have younger people and oldish people here. Uh, how do we? How do we as a church try to? Make those connections happen. That's a big range. And it is. Early in our marriage, Jill and I needed certain things. Later in our marriage, we needed other things. How, do, how are we trying to manage that gap?
1: Well, I think that one of the most effective ways to do ministry is to do it multi generational. I really do. So, whether it's through small groups, you've got a younger um, woman in with an older woman, and the things that you can learn, that's one thing. But also through our marriage ministry, I would love to see older couples and younger couples, some with experience and some brand new, to really be able to feed on each other. The older ones are getting excitement and encouragement for the younger ones and the younger ones are getting advice practical advice on what to expect from marriage and how did you work through an issue that you had maybe that could help them so I think there's a huge huge um, uh, possibility for great change through that
0: so when we talk about marriage you're right on the core of the mission of our church our church is here to help families become fully developing followers of Jesus. And core to our mission is helping families thrive at home. So thanks for what you do. Would you guys help me say thanks to Melissa for her leadership? We appreciate you. Well, I want to talk with you today from your message notes. They look like this on the inside. I want to talk to you today in part three of our Family Matters series on what Jesus had to say about divorce. Now, uh, the good news is, is that um, if you came here today and this topic has touched your life, you don't have to put on your seatbelt. Uh, This is not one of those messages where I'm going to rant and rail against um, an experience that is common to so many families. And what we're gonna do instead is just try to discover God's heart on the matter. And whenever I deal with something that might be potentially heavy, one of the things that I try to do is I try to find some humor around the topic. So I scoured the web for humor on divorce. Interestingly enough, there's not a whole lot of it. Um, it's not a very funny topic. I did find two jokes that I'll probably get emails for, but here we go. Have you heard about the new divorced Barbie? She comes with all of Ken's stuff. <laughs> And then I heard about the woman who said to her husband, I'd like a divorce. And he said, you can't do that. We stood in front of God in a church and we promised we'd be together until death do us part. She said, well, in that case, go ahead and drink that tea I made for you. (laughs) Dark humor, it's not funny at all. Um, We're gonna park in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, turn on your phone, follow along in the screen or in your message notes. I wanna walk you through this set of scriptures because this is the primary place in the Bible where Jesus talks about a topic that has touched so many lives. I mean, there's a family in here who hasn't experienced either personally or through a close friend, a a, a loved relative, this topic. And it's a big deal. It has a major impact on families. Some of you grew up in a family where the divorce had touched your family and it has left scars and sometimes unresolved conflict and tension. Even today, when you discovered that the topic was gonna to be talked about, like you felt a little twinge. Other folks are in the middle of it right now. We're a larger church and we have people in all you know, levels of their relationships as adults. And so some of our folks are in this right now. Some of you are still recoiling from an event over just a few years ago. And so when we talk about it today, what I want you to understand is, is our heart here is simply to discover why is this such a big deal to Jesus and what is the heart of God on the matter? When we engage the Scripture, the point is never to discover a handful of tools by which we can manipulate, judge, or handle other people to get them to do what we want or to operate in a system that we think is important. It's never the goal with Scripture. The goal with Scripture is is to discover God's heart and hope that the heart of God, the love of their heavenly Father who's very good... We hope that God's heart will grab their hearts and he will, by his grace, mercy, and truth, pull people in the direction he wants them to go. We do less pushing, what we do is present. God does the pulling and his grace and his truth are powerful agents in people's lives. And so when we talk about this today, I want you to just be open and receptive, if you can, to what Jesus is saying. We're gonna go to our scriptures in just a moment. And the guys in the back, I didn't prompt them for this, but I'm gonna actually walk you through points one, two, and three before we get to the scriptures, all right? And so let me just start by giving us some background here. Number one, the blank there, it says, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. That's a big deal. It has a lot of impact. One of the reasons that God says in the Old Testament book of Malachi that he hates divorce. That's the language he uses. I hate divorce. One of the reasons he hates it is, is because the pain it brings to people he loves so much. I mean, there's very few events in life that are more painful than the, than the ending of a marriage that two people thought was going to last a lifetime. It it literally like rips the scab off of often years of built up hurt and anguish. It's a big deal. And so when we talk about divorce, sometimes in church, in an effort to make people understand that the stakes are high and that marriage is not throwaway, sometimes when we talk about divorce, if church is not careful, it seems like it is the top. It's the biggest thing. It's the biggest sin. And then, of course, people are emotionally predisposed to think deeply about it and feel deeply about it. And so those two things come together where it often might feel like this is the worst thing somebody can go through. But that's not true. Scripturally speaking, what really is going on here is God's heart breaks for people who've gone through a situation like this. Nobody ever stands before God and a group of people and says, I do to one another, thinking that in just a matter of a few months or a few years, it's going to go sideways. Nobody does that, right? Most of us go in with good faith and good intention and high hopes, and then the rest of life happens, So number two, let me me spend a little bit more time on this with number one. Uh, As a church family, you you might want to fill in these blanks. We don't come judgmentally to the topic. In fact, I don't want to judge at all. What I want to do instead is I want to equip you to make judgments for your own life. I want you to have at the end of this conversation a handful of tools by which you can think and categorize. And most of all, I want you to have an understanding so that you can judge what you think God's heart is for you in the middle of a situation. Either you've come through it, somebody you care about to come through it, you hope you never go through it, whatever it is, I want you to be able to judge God's heart for your situation and for what's going on in you and understand why a church like ours would make healthy families, spiritually healthy families, relationally healthy families, central to our mission of why we even exist. Number two, All families, all families have brokenness. And by that, I mean very hurtful conflict. All families. It's the nature of humanity. You bring two people together over time. Eventually, there's gonna be conflict. And some of it hurts very, very deeply. There isn't a family in this room. There's not a person in this room who hasn't been touched by deep conflict and hurt in their family, their family of origin or the family they're trying to put together in their marriage. It's just the nature of life. So we can't talk about this subject as detached agents looking through a microscope at some organism and we describe it with scientific precision. That is not possible today. No, we are fellow travelers. We are wounded warriors talking about a subject that impacts everybody. Deep pain, pain deep hurt. If that hasn't been your experience, one of two things is happening. You're incredibly rare, or you're just not aware. One or the other, take your pick. This is normal. And our heavenly father loves us so much and our life with God is so practical and all invasive that even in the most deeply hurtful seasons of our life, God is present, wants to make himself known, And is available to us as a loving father. Number three, here's just the reality, much to my frustration, is premarital counseling cannot prevent all conflict. In fact, sometimes I've wondered why we do premarital counseling before people are married. And then I remembered, that's why it's called premarital counseling. I almost feel like what we should do is just say, hey, get married. And in six months, let's have some meetings. Because it's after six months or so, or maybe a year, that you've lived long enough with that person to discover, hmm, it's not all I thought it would be, right? The premarital counseling, the best it can do, and I suggest that everybody should actually do premarital counseling, the best it can do is provide some tools not to prevent conflict, but to keep conflict from ruining a marriage. And here's a fundamental point just to put in your head. It's not that you're having conflict. That's not the problem. It's normal. Two different people come together. You're going to have conflict. The issue is, is how is that conflict engaged, dealt with, resolved, grown through? There's the challenge. It's a very similar kind of dynamic that happens in another arena of my life that I care a lot about local church. There's a reason why God calls the church the bride of Christ. It's the marriage metaphor. And in many ways, some of the same dynamics happen in a family that happen in a church. You can't come together for any length of time without differing opinions and differing personalities bumping up against one another. There's going to be conflict. And no matter how much goodwill is present, you're going to have it. And so wise people over time learn that it's not the conflict itself. It's how the conflict is engaged. And divorce is often the result of not a particular conflict itself or a particular disappointment or a particular sin. Often it's the result of how that is dealt with, often in a pattern over time, and it accumulates to this moment where one person or perhaps both people say, we just can't do this anymore. Or I don't wanna do this anymore. Or the marriage is so broken, it's not possible for us to do this anymore. That's not the conflict itself, right? And then number two, no one marries someone who does not, or excuse me, no one marries someone who does conflict in the same way that comes naturally to that person, to him or her. So the person you married, it's almost a universal rule that when you come to conflict, you behave one way. When they come to conflict, they behave another way. And it's almost a universal rule that you don't behave in the same ways. Almost a universal rule. In fact, I've discovered that the way I'm broken and wired and the way Jill is broken and wired, something interesting happens. We come together with high hopes, and she has a remarkable ability to bring out the absolute worst in me. And I have a remarkable ability to bring out the absolute worst in her. And for a while, we faked it, but then we decided, hey, we've been together long enough, and over time, we could bring out the worst in one another. Now, it's not all we do, but if we're not careful in conflict, that's exactly what happens. So just let me run you through some conflict res, uh, resolution type patterns and personalities that exist in the room. And I was thinking about, wouldn't it be fun if I would have you raise your hand when I came to your one, right? Not going to do that. Here's much more fun. Raise your hand when I describe your spouse. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that either. Much more fun though, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be much more fun? But we're not going to, don't raise your hand at all. Don't look around the room, put your eyes down, all heads bowed, all eyes closed, as I used to say at the church I grew up in, all right? There are peacemakers in the room and you just want to get past the conflict. You'll say anything to smooth it over. All conflict is bad and you're just gonna do what you can to make it go away. And your proof that you have a healthy marriage is, it's relatively conflict-free. That's the peacemakers. Then there's the stuffer, right? So you cram all the anger down. You think you do. Your spouse says to you, are you okay? And you're like, I'm fine, Why do you ask? You're stuffing it down, right? And kind of like a pressure cooker if you're not careful over time. There's the sulker. The sulker. Uh, and, and this this issue is, is you're not gonna fight back, but instead you're gonna sulk around and you're gonna drop hints about what's bothering you. But if somebody asks, you're gonna say, oh nothing. But then you keep dropping clues, right? And you're kind of sulking, hoping that they'll deeply engage. Some of you are married to a litigator, it's a good arguer, and they want to prove and they have the ability verbally to prove that they're right and you're wrong and some people are married to the screamer. I don't have to describe this one it's kind of self-explanatory, right? And it's funny because two screamers rarely get together. Now somebody can become a screamer long term, but it's us- or in, in the short term. But it's usually after if that's not their natural inclination, after some extended conflict and maybe they'll have an outburst. Often a sulker will become a screamer for a moment and then go back into sulking. Just as I went through those four or five types of personalities of how they handle conflict without like being psychologists or having PhDs, you probably kind of could put yourself into one or two of those. Like one's your primary, maybe one's a secondary. Maybe, I bet you, your spouse is not the exact same kind of person. And so what that means is that if conflict is normal, if it's going to happen, and if we don't come to it... Predisposed and pre-wired to manage it well, to work through it, to grow through it, to resolve it in, with comfort and ease and, and speed, then it's likely that some problems just continue to grow. Now, let's then talk about your marriage for a second. Let's talk about like the friends you know really well or your family members and you've had a dinner with them and you and your spouse go home and on the car ride home, you say, you know what they need in their marriage? They just need to, and you're able without a PhD to describe what if they were to do would probably resolve a lot of hurt and conflict in their marriage very quickly. Anybody else have a friend like that? Like you're with them and you're like, you know what, she's not respectful or he's not patient and you can see their thing. I just wanna make something very clear to you. While you have the great ability to do that for other people, somebody's done that to you too. Like you left a meeting somewhere and somebody said about you guys, you know what they need? They need a, and you were, they were able to see your thing. Here's the challenge with conflict. It's really easy to see the other person's thing. It's really easy. And it's very hard to look in the mirror. It's just the nature of things. All of us have a tendency towards self-deception and it takes a lot of time and effort to get past that. And when that's not done in a marriage, conflict boils, boils, and sometimes it boils over. So then point number three, conflict is inevitable in a marriage. And for many, it destroys their marriage. For many people, it destroys their marriage. It wasn't that they so much fell out of love or one day woke up and decided, like, in a moment, I'm gonna sleep with somebody I'm not married to. That's typically not what happens. It's typically over time, there's a sliding away from one another or there was the absence of growing together, both active and passive. And over time, conflicts take root and disconnections become the normal And the next thing you know, there's a lifelessness where there was high hopes and deep pain will set in. Now, that's not new in our day. This was going on in the New Testament. It was going on in the Old Testament. One day, Jesus was doing his teaching thing with his followers, and there was a group of people who was very anti-Jesus, And they regularly tried to put Jesus in situations where they could trap him and take this wildly popular guy and make him very unpopular with the masses. And these people who were against Jesus knew that nothing was more emotional to a person, nothing was more personal to the crowd than the subject of their personal relationships, of their marriages. When you talk about this stuff, it impacts everybody. So... In an attempt to make Jesus look foolish and get unpopular, they decided they would, in a very public way, ask him questions about one of the most emotionally engaging issues of the day, marriage and divorce. Now, just a, little, a couple rules about life. You don't get into a ground war with China. It's very difficult to win a ground war with China. Right? Just a rule. And you don't get into a sparring match on theology with Jesus. You just don't do it. It ain't gonna go well. It's just not going to go well, all right? So in Matthew chapter 19 now, at the top of your message notes, and as a verbal clue to the guys in the back, we're gonna kind of work through a handful of scriptures, and then we're gonna jump back to point number four, all right? So Matthew chapter 19, the setting is an attempt to trick Jesus. Here's what happens. When Jesus had finished saying these things, He left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. And some Pharisees came to him to test him. Large crowds followed him and he healed him. I skipped that verse. Pharisees came to him and tested him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? We're gonna come back to that. In what reason is it lawful? Now for these Jewish people, when they refer to the phrase lawful, they're talking about the actual law. The law that Moses gave and the rabbis developed over time. Is it okay? Is it permissible? Is God okay with this for any and every reason? And then verse four, Jesus replies, haven't you read? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Right? So Jesus, in response, goes back to the beginning. And he says, here's what God's plan was for marriage. One man, one woman, covenant of marriage for a lifetime. Nobody should separate that. Leave and cleave. Leave your family of origin, men, and cleave to your wife. So it used to be said this way, and I'll just give this as a little extra bonus today. If you aren't prepared to leave your home and make it on your own, you're not ready for marriage. And so you probably shouldn't play at marriage until you're ready to do those kinds of adult behaviors because marriage is gonna require a certain amount of maturity to engage, it's hard enough and you don't wanna set the course downhill. You don't have two strikes against you by being immature. So you leave, create a certain sense of independence and readiness, and then you can cleave, you can hold on to your wife. And this is you know, a little pushback from Jesus against the culture of his day, but it's still very appropriate for our day, all right? So then verse seven, why then, now that we're back to the trapping technique. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. So in the Old Testament, Moses had provided in his law that he received from God, a stipulation that allowed for divorce, all right? So Jesus replied, Moses permitted. Now there's, that's interesting. They said Moses commanded, Jesus said Moses permitted. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are, were hard But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, it's like a big deal. Now, in a culture where adultery was punishable by death, the stakes are higher than it might seem today. So let's strip it for just a moment of its cultural context And just remember that the issues that we're talking about, whether they're lawful or unlawful, whether people get away with them or don't get away with them, whether it feels okay and everybody's doing it or not, that's not what we're doing here. I'm just acknowledging that these topics, no matter what the law says about them, are deeply hurtful. They leave deep scars on you, on your kids, on the people who care about you as you watch these things unfold. But in Jesus's day, the stakes are much higher, much higher, right? And then in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. And some people who've been married for a few years would say, yes, it would be better not to marry, right? Because you know, like, you're like, did I do the right thing? I told the truth here that at about our one year anniversary, at this point in my life, I was a stuffer. And um, I was just giving in and giving in and giving in. And at some point I'd given in enough and the pressure cooker was on. And and about the one year anniversary mark, Jill and I had our first fight and we've tried to recover what it was about. I don't remember what it was about, but I let loose. I mean, I let loose and we had a full blown argument, like a first one where it was fully engaged both. Now, just so we're all aware, I have completely gotten over my stuffing tendencies. I'm completely past that, but in that moment, and I remember that night laying in bed about the one-year mark going, I am trapped. How do I get out of this? I have made the biggest mistake, and here I am a year in, and I'm going into ministry, and people don't forgive that stuff, and I'm done, and we were laying back-to-back in our bed. It was painful, and uh, and she's sitting right over there. We got over it. All right, it was fine, but at the moment, at the moment, 27 years ago, it felt horrible, right? Right? So it's better not to marry. And then verse number 11, Jesus replied. This is interesting. We're gonna finish our conversation with these words in a few moments, all right? Jesus replied, not everybody can accept what I'm about to say, this word, but only those to whom it has been given. So it's like a gift from God to be able to do this. And then he gives this really weird list of of words, right? For there are eunuchs who were born that way. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, um, I can't tell you, all right? You'll have to Google that, but don't put it on safe filter. Put it on safe filter if you get it, all right? a, a eunuch is unable to engage physically in the relationship, all right? For there are eunuchs who are born that way. They, they don't have to have sexual connections. And there are eunuchs who have been made that way by other people. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And n- the one who can accept this should, but those who can't implied probably shouldn't try to live an asexual life. That's Jesus, I'm not making any of that up. I just read it, all right? So what, again, is God's heart on divorce? Let's move down to point number four. Jesus taught us with clarity about God's heart for marriage and about divorce. And I want to get to one of those moments where he was attempting to be tripped up. This idea of, is it a command to get a divorce or is it permitted? Is it a command or is it a concession? So in the Bible, commands express God's heart. They reveal his plans. And the command was that a man or woman should ideally leave his father and mother, her father and mother, and be united to each other and become one new union, one flesh. And when God has joined together, nobody should separate. But there was a concession, according to Jesus made. Moses permitted it. He allowed it because there was sin in the world. And what particular sin? Hard hearts, hard hearts. Hearts get hardened with conflict, unresolved pain over time, hard hearts. Sometimes people sit in a room and they're unresponsive to the truth they're receiving and they go out and they operate in a completely different way and it brings damage and pain. This is what happens over time and marriages disintegrate because of not just human nature, that's part of it, but a particular part of human nature, which is a tendency to be hard-hearted. And this is what breaks God's heart. God wants our hearts soft towards him, soft towards each other. And so when a divorce has happened, we don't have to know all the details. There's a lot of pain. It's not the time to throw stones, but we can know just from that that there's some heart stuff going on somewhere. This idea that we just kind of amiably separated is really a farce. It doesn't really happen that way unless they simply amiably came together and it was never a real commitment to begin with. But if there are high hopes for a lifetime together, it's never just as simple as, you know, we just grew apart. I've heard that language. But the truth is, is there's a lot of experience over time that says we're no longer compatible. And at the root of that, there's a lot of heart issues. Now, these words here are primarily for followers of Jesus. Anybody can benefit from them, but they're really given to followers of Jesus. So if somebody's not following Jesus, what I'm getting ready to say doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The words are, are, are these. That it's God's desire that marriage would be the thing, the very dynamic, that grows us the most. And in those conflict moments, it wouldn't be a hard-heartedness that sits in. Instead, there would be a soft-heartedness that says, God, I'm watching what it's like to live with me as I watch this dynamic in the marriage. And watching what it's like to live with me as I watch this dynamic in my marriage, God, would you help that make me humble and not arrogant? Would you help, me, would you help make that, make me soft-hearted in that? not hard-hearted in that. Because it's very difficult to deal with this other human being. But as I think about that, it's also very difficult for me to realize that they have a hard time possibly living with me. And so on the front end of conflict, long before it's deep-seated, the goal of that conflict is to get a person, a follower of Jesus, to look in and say, God, how do you want to work on me? So in that fight we just had, I was right, but I spoke wrongly. Like how I spoke was wrong. Or I was wrong and I was selfishly holding on to that. And so the first thing God wants to do to prevent us from going in this place is to make our hearts soft. Total candor here. When Jill and I have had unresolved conflict about any issue over time, at the root of it, almost always, wasn't a personality conflict or communication conflict or a scheduling conflict. That wasn't what was going on there was at the root of it a sin problem. It wasn't that we simply needed more information most of the time. Almost never. But there was a selfishness and a spiritual immaturity that one and most of the time both of us were bringing to the table. And so most marriage issues among believers are really at the core heart problems. Jesus says that because Moses acknowledges that people are at all levels of the spiritual spectrum in a fallen world, it would be chaos if there wasn't a permissive use of a divorce clause. But it was never God's intent. His intent was instead of projecting out anger, we would look in and say, God, would you grow me through this situation? And just as a guy who's done quite a bit of counseling both receiving it and giving it, I will tell you that when people come in and they say, we're having marriage problems and you can sense each person is saying, I'll do my part and I'll do my part, I can make with them incredible fast motion towards reconciliation and healing. But if either one of them says, it's really the other person and that's the deep seated feeling of their heart, it's almost impossible to move forward. I recall a time when a couple sat down with me and said, um, guy was very candid. I've had an inappropriate relationship with somebody I worked with. And we would like to resolve our issues. I don't want to give up. We've got a kid. I want to go forward. I was like, thank you, Jesus. Oh, man. that's Because the truth is, is some of the best marriages I know today have been touched by adultery. And there was great forgiveness and great growth. And they, they built an incredible life together where it looked like it was headed for sudden destruction. I know those people. Like, It's a beautiful story. And I thought, this is one of them. So it just hit me, I need to ask a very, very simple question. I looked at the guy and I said, hey man, thanks for that transparency and honesty. So have you cut it off with this other woman completely? No. Okay. Okay. And I'm just like, so what do I do now? (laughs) I don't remember this in seminary. I don't remember this in counseling classes. Like what, what do I do? So I just thought, I'll ask this question. Are you willing to cut it off completely? don't think I can. So now, what appeared to be the right language is clearly not a situation where somebody's coming saying, I recognize my fault, I'm willing to turn away. There's an unwillingness there. And so I simply turned to the wife and said, look, until that's done, you don't have the possibility of a marriage. You don't have the possibility of a marriage. This is the kind of realities that Moses was dealing with when people would just be stupid about their life choices they would sometimes be, you know, they'd be lonely and then they would do things unjustified or they'd be hurt or there'd just be opportunity or maybe they never got out of adolescent mentality and they would make life choices, whatever it was. But then in response to those, they would kind of double down. And when that kind of thing happens, marriages are in trouble, like doubling down, not dealing with it, not acknowledging it. The biblical word for that is repentance. And I know this is a little heavy, but remember, core to our mission as a church is to help marriages thrive. And I wanna give you just a piece of practical pastoral advice. Marriages cannot thrive if there isn't a healthy, robust, regular repentance in your marriage. It will not thrive spiritually. It will not thrive spiritually if there isn't a healthy, robust repentance. Number five, there's a Hebrew phrase, erwat dabar. Erwat Dabar, and it's translated something indecent from the original Hebrew, something indecent. When Jesus was giving the words about Moses, he said that it was, you were given um, the possibility of having a divorce from Moses if something indecent, Erwat Dabar happened, something indecent. And there were two primary schools of thought about this, Rabbi Shimei and Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shimei and Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shimei was the more conservative. He was a commentator for Fox News, lived in the South. And he took a kind of you know, strict interpretation of the phrase, something indecent. And so um, his phrase was, unless there was something sexually indecent, you can't get a divorce legally. Rabbi Hillel, his idea was anything indecent. And so there's actually like written language from the Old Testament time in between the Old and New Testament where the school from Rabbi Hillel indicate that if she burns the toast consistently, that's indecent, you could divorce her for that. Right, sound good? <laughs> Bad meal, I'm out of here, All right? And, and so in Jesus's day between Rabbi Shimei and Rabbi Hillel, the, most of the culture was around Rabbi Hillel. Anything indecent, anything problematic Don't like the clothes, you know, erwat dabar. Bad breath in the morning, erwat dabar. You know, embarrass me in front of my friends, erwat dabar, something indecent. And so there was divorce all over the place in Jesus' day and it was wildly popular and it's deeply emotional and here's Jesus being trapped. What do you say? Are you gonna go with the stream of the day or are you gonna go with that more conservative, you know, Rabbi Shemayi's school? And Jesus kicks it up a notch. He says, not just any type, but unless it's like adultery, it's not really permissible. Jesus goes above and beyond. Now, the backdrop of this story is John the Baptist has just been beheaded because he looked at the king and said, hey, king, your divorce isn't legitimate. And the king said, hmm, they can't have you doing that. And so uh, they cut off his head. And that was Jesus's cousin. And so this is the backdrop story. So the stakes are really high in this exact situation. So, in number six, then, Jesus goes stricter than the conservative position on the basis of what God had established from the beginning one man, one woman, and coming into marriage for a lifetime. So, to Jesus, then, marriage is a covenant. This is a unique word, which is not quite a contract, it's not companionship, and it's not just for procreation. And this is an important distinction. Because in our world today, uh, there is, as it was in Jesus' world, a certain consumeristic attack or a a consumeristic attitude about marriage. There was an attack from consumerism on marriage. The idea was, as long as it's working for me, then it's good to last. And when it's not working for me, it's no longer good to last. And there was a disposable nature about marriage in Jesus' day. And against that, Jesus says, you know what? Among the people of God, it shouldn't be this way shouldn't be this way. I know the stakes are high. I know the hurt is deep, but really there's a better and a higher way. And it's only because of the hardness of hearts that we even get to this position anyway. So to Jesus, it's a covenant. And so in number eight, he allows divorce in the case of adultery because it killed the covenant. Two people came together and said exclusive and permanent, but then it's not exclusive. That kills the covenant. And Jesus says, when the covenant is dead, then that person is free to re-engage life as, as, as if the covenant doesn't, exi- doesn't exist. And so for Jesus, he realized that marriage is difficult and people sin and you're not stuck and beholden to somebody else's issue, but it isn't something to throw away as a matter of convenience. And the issue didn't go away because in number nine, Paul has to deal with it in a unique situation in the 1st Corinthian church. In the 1st Corinthian church, which is a wildly messed up church, by the way, there were a lot of young believers. And here's what was happening. Young believers were getting saved. One person in a marriage was getting saved and the other one wasn't. It was creating all kinds of conflict in the marriage. Somebody wanted to follow God through Christ. Somebody didn't. Well, what do you do with that? Well, do you leave for spiritual reasons? So Paul writes and says, no. No. If you're married to an unbeliever, you stay with them. You, you might even be able to turn them. But if they want to walk away, if they want to desert the marriage, if they do that, you're free then to remarry. Because if you desert the marriage, you break the covenant. So number nine, 1 Corinthians 7, allows for divorce in the cases of desertion. You're free to, desert, to, to go if they leave. But if they want to stay, you stay there. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Just as God has called them. And then he says, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. This applies to everybody. Now here's the Bible's teaching. Some people go a step further and they say, what if practically the covenant is killed through adultery, adultery, through desertion, or perhaps in cases of abuse. Because, you know, abuse is bad and it's a real issue. And most conservative biblical people would say that that's a form of desertion, a form of walking away from the covenant, and makes it unsafe for a person to stay. And my pastoral advice is if there's abuse, go ahead and separate and, 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 and get out of an abusive situation and give room for reconciliation and growth, perhaps. And if not, it would be permissible by a a, a generous application of this passage to to move away. That's what what I advise. Other people disagree. That's where I go. But that's only half the discussion. And the other half I'm going to have with you in just a matter of three minutes to four minutes. It's point number 10. That's what Jesus says about divorce. It's understandable. But the real question is, is how do I stay in a difficult marriage? this is where my heart breaks. How do you stay in a difficult marriage? Where maybe the level of pain and dysfunction and sin hasn't risen all the way to the level that Jesus allowed in adultery, or all the way towards desertion, or even all the way towards abuse. I wanna give you four ideas. Number one, I think that against our culture, against Disney movies, which I love, against, Popular myth, you have to reject the right person myth. Reject the right person myth. The right person myth says if you could just find the right person, you'll be happy. That right person will fill your soul, they'll complete you. You complete me, as the movies say. The problem with that myth is is that no human being was ever meant to complete you. And if you're putting that kind of pressure on your spouse, it's likely you're going to be disappointed. No, for the follower of Jesus, only God completes a human being. Only God can fill the holes created in our lives, the ones we were born with, the ones that were given to us through the course of our life. Only God can do that. Now, a a healthy spouse and a good marriage can help. But a spouse can never make you feel loved all the time. Only God can do that. And a spouse will disappoint you. It's only God that will not disappoint you. It's only God who does not change, who is faithful. It's only him who is always good. So there's no right person. I've seen people jump out of one marriage and into another. And interestingly enough, similar dynamics emerged over time. So how do you stay in an in 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 unhealthy or in a difficult marriage for a while? You know, giving room for God's grace? to have a soft heart in the middle, you reject the right person myth. Number two, I think you do it for Jesus. There are many times in our marriage where Jill has had to look at me in in a season and say, I see my husband there, but standing right behind my husband is Jesus. And he was there when we made our covenant to one another. And I promised to him that I would be faithful and true and work together and build a life together. But as I made that promise to him, I was also making it to Jesus. And my spiritual call on my life to be in a relationship with Jesus calls me to a deep commitment even when my husband doesn't always live up to it. And so sometimes she's had to forget that I was in the room and kind of act like Jesus was in the room just to put up with me. I hate to admit that, but it's true. And so sometimes I think we stay in a difficult marriage because it's the right thing to do as it relates to our relationship with Jesus. What I'm trying to push against here is not resign yourself to an ugly marriage. I'm trying to say that marriage is not disposable according to Jesus. And that what he wants to do with that is he wants to make us not just happy, he wants to grow us and make us holy. And that often when there's relational dysfunction, there's a corollary spiritual immaturity. And that's why what I'm encouraging you to do is to get into a group and actually try to grow spiritually by meeting weekly. And you'll have to put that on a calendar because nothing in your life is gonna make it easy for you to have a healthy marriage. Number three, this is controversial, but it's my opinion right now. I think that sometimes you do it for other people. You stay together for other people. I actually think it's worth staying together for the kids. I really do. I mean, I don't have to quote to you the stats and what happens to the kids of divorce. Statistically speaking, I'll be unhappy. Well, maybe. And maybe that's a spot where God could begin to work in your life and give you a definition of happiness that might be more important than the one you're holding on to. I don't know. It's just a suggestion. The final thing I would say how you stay in a difficult marriage is get some counseling. Get some counseling. And I don't mean going to your friends and describing the pain because your friends ladies, will always rally around your emotion and very rarely tell you the truth about you. It's just reality. And men, you probably won't even have the conversation to begin with, so you're no better off. What you need is a professional Christian counselor that loves the Word of God and loves you and has seen this a hundred times, and they'll help you grow through things. You need somebody that will speak the truth to you. and doesn't matter if you get mad, they're going to get paid because the moment you so- showed up at the at the session, you sign the receipt at that moment. That's why you, if you, ever go, that's why you pay on the front end, right? Because you might leave in two minutes. They know that. So they're gonna get paid. So they don't have any reason to give you good news. They're just gonna tell you the truth about you. And most of us need that. So why should I, or, or if I get divorced, then real quickly, why uh, should I get remarried? Well, when divorce is legitimate, then remarriage is legitimate for the Christian. But just because you can get remarried doesn't mean that you should. I think you should give it real time for the previous relationship to be restored. I encourage everybody to give it at least a year before you start dating. There's so much emotion, it's very difficult to get into it. But that brings me to my final point. If I'm divorced, how does God see me? Well, it may surprise you to know that God himself says of himself that he's a divorced person. In Jeremiah chapter three, uh, three, verse eight, he says, for all of her adulteries, I gave faithful, or faithless Israel a certificate of divorce. And throughout the Old Testament, God says, my wife walked away from me. That's Israel. And so divorce, clearly in this situation, God did not sin when he uses that metaphor to describe his relationship with Israel. But even if you had sinned, this is where our core message comes clear, that the grace of God is available to people no matter where they are on this spectrum. I wanted to do this message with you today in the middle of the Family Matters series because the reality is so many of our lives have been touched by this issue and I have a hunch that if we could pull back the veneer and could see the future unless God is involved, many marriages in this room won't make it. That makes my heart heavy. I don't want that to happen. And I wanted you to hear Jesus's heart on the matter but I wanted you to have some hope as well. It's worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. If you are flirting with somebody that you're not married to, there's some hiddenness in your life, hear me. Stop it, stop it, stop it. You've got hidden social media engagements. Stop it. What you're doing is you're flirting with sin and sin will take you farther than you wanna go. It'll take you longer than you wanna stay. It'll cost you more than you wanna pay. And if there's some unresolved conflict in your marriage, get some help. Pray together. Get some counseling. We're here to help you. We'll line you up. Our church is generous. We'll pay for your counseling if you don't have insurance. I can't make you go to a session. I can't make you come with an open and humble heart saying, all right, it may not all be me, but part of this is me, so let's start with me. Let's start with me. Let's start with me. We'll start with me. I'll, but let's start with me. Let's deal with my issue. I can't make you do that. I can only get you you know, a counseling appointment. But one thing I want you to know about our church, we are deeply committed that if you're at all committed to a healthy marriage, we'll help you. We'll help you. If you want recovery from divorce, we'll help you. You have to present yourself available, but we will help you. And you can do that by writing on your Connect card today. Another way you can do that is you can come forward for prayer and say, God, this is beyond me. I need prayer. And so after the service today, my wife and I will be standing right up here along with the prayer team. If you're a lady, go to one of the ladies. If you're a man, come to me. Go to one of the other ladies or one of the other men on the prayer team. We're gonna divide out. We don't have hours to pray, but we'll put hands on you and ask God to be there for you. Your marriage is worth fighting for. thus, stakes are high. And one of the reasons why the enemy of your soul wants to pull you away is because he doesn't want you to press into all that God has for you. And if he can keep you consumed with relational dysfunction, he will prevent you from stepping into your destiny, making the difference you're supposed to make. I wanna push back against that today. And the only way I know how to push back against that kind of evil and demonic activity is to preach the truth from God's word and cover it in prayer. Because that's what this is a spiritual fight, demonic activity against you and your family. God is greater. Would you do this? Would you take out your Connect card? Let's take some steps together as a congregation. Now, if for some reason you're hearing this, and I need to just say this in total candor to you. Um, there's a certain kind of directness to my talk today and it's only because the whole time I'm fighting tears. I am brokenhearted by what I know. And it just it wrecks me as a pastor. And so if for whatever reason you felt like my tone wasn't loving or anything, it could just be because I'm an emotional wreck right now. I love you. I want you free. I want you healthy and I want you whole. So I want to know if there's anybody in the room today that would take that pen and check next step A that says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. At the core of these kinds of issues is often a spiritual problem. And it could be that you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. So if you don't, what the Bible says is you can have one simply by acknowledging that you need a Savior. And you can accept the work Jesus has done on his cross and in his resurrection to save you. Check the box, put it in the offering bucket in a moment or two, and we'll pray with you about it. Next step B is today I'm choosing to be baptized. If that's you, if you want to be baptized, check the box. We have seven adults getting baptized in a week or so. Like, it's incredible already. It's gonna be great. A couple, couple adults with their teenage kids. Wow. I mean, God's working. So if that's you, Check the box, we'll answer your questions, get you signed up. Or next step B, maybe the investment you need to make in your marriage is like you'll find the time, you'll create the time to go to a Bible study small group. And there's one for blended families, I think, right now. I think it might be the first time we've offered this. So if you're stuck and you're not blended, you need to just discover what number that is and write that down. Next step D, it says send me the link for the grow experiences. We'll send you all the calendar dates between now and the end of the year. These things will happen consistently. So if you can't make it, you can make another one. This is a normal part of our calendar moving forward. And then next step E says, please send me advance notice of 4 these upcoming marriage ministry opportunities. So the things Melissa was talking about, if you'll check this, you'll get an advance notice. You might even be asked if you're willing to help us pull some of these events off, all right? So what we're gonna do right now is I'm gonna ask you to just hold onto that Connect card. And for people who call this church home, I'd like you to also now pull out the gifts you wanna give back to God and make the ministry here happen. So I know it's a little little heavy today, but I I, I need you to know as well as we're getting ready to give our tithe and our offering that the stakes are very high. They're very high. And it'd be very inappropriate for me to do this. It'd be very inappropriate for me to tell you the names of people, but trust me. Like around you in this room are people whose marriages have literally been saved because of the ministry of this church. And there are people who came in because their marriages were broken and they found healing and community here. And they found that the God of grace was gracious even in sin that they committed or in sin that was committed against them. And that happened because you make it happen. It happens because you literally give money that pays for lights, pays for salary, pays for programming, It makes it happen. It literally touches people's lives. I'm grateful for that. A couple times a year, I'll get heavy hearted about what's going on in our families, if you'll put up with that. But what, what we can't do is fail to support a ministry that brings life to people. Let's pray about our next steps in this offering. Father, thank you for what you're doing in the life of our church. Thank you for the next steps that are being taken even now. God, some people are taking some steps that I didn't suggest, and they're 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 agreeing with you right now that they're going to go home and have an important conversation. They're going to go home and apologize. They're going to delete some social media accounts. They're going to bring transparency where there's hiddenness. They're going to get counseling. Father, whatever steps you want us to take, I pray we'd be bold enough to take them. That we'd push back against darkness that destroys families. And we'd step up into the light that you're calling us to, Lord. The stakes are high. Thanks for letting us be a part of making an eternal difference. I pray for those that are taking next step A right now. They're saying, Jesus, forgive me, wash away my sins. I wanna commit my life to you. I won't be perfect, but I'll follow you and let you be Lord as best as I know how. Father, I pray for this offering that we're giving, that you would take the money, you would make it go far and wide to the restoration of families, to the healing of people, to the goodness of the gospel, to the truth and the light that you bring. It's only temporary money, but God, would you use it to make eternal difference? Grow your kingdom, grow this church through it. And Father, before I say amen, I lift up every marriage in this room. Thank you for the strong ones, their encouragement to us. Thank you for the healed ones. They're proof that you are faithful and gracious. And Father, thank you for the struggling ones, that they're here in this room and they are not untouchable by your grace. God, would you help us to be a church that helps families become fully developing followers of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son, amen.